Hi there, and welcome back to Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. It's been nice to be back. I got some nice reactions, some very kind notes um, on our episode with Cale Keegan about his book, Lana and Lily Wachowski, Sensing Transgender. So it's been nice to kind of walk through the, the work of some of my colleagues and fellow scholars and to discuss movies that some of us may or may not have seen. Joining me today is a good friend of mine, Kristen Warner, an associate professor in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media at the University of Alabama. She is the author of The Cultural Politics of Colorblind TV Casting from Rutledge in 2015. Warner's research interests are centered around the media industries, race, representation, and creative labor. Warner's work can be found in academic journals, a host of anthologies, online websites such as Los Angeles Review of Books and Film Quarterly, and of course, on Twitter, where you can find her at Kristen Warner with an E-N. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Kristen. Um, I want to start off with a really basic question, and that's what shaped your interest in film and media even before you went to school? My mother, um, she, we, my story is very simple. I was five and I had cable in my room (laughs) because my parents were of like the, uh, civil rights era, Cosby era. And in their minds, like middle class affluence meant you had, we could run cable everywhere in the house. And so they just never said Kristen's room can't have it. Everybody has it. So when you have cable at five and you have HBO, you watch everything. (laughs) And so she, my mother was really very trusting. Like she just, there was something I had a question about, or I saw some content that I probably had no business watching. (laughs) I might just say, you know, Hey, I saw this thing and she, we would talk about it or we would watch the color purple together and she would explain, you know, what these scenes meant and like, or she would, take me to all the movies. So there wasn't a sort of a content lock that I had. So I was also, I was always in the movies, always watching things. And so I think I developed a curiosity about what media could be uh, and what kinds of things I liked. And I remember when I was in high school, I developed an intense obsession with the Brat Pack. I was just like, I had to know about them. I had to know everything. I had to research and read about all of these people. So I knew all the things about Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze and Ringwald and all those folks. It was just crazy. And so somehow I thought that there was like, oh, like you could go to film school and you can study the Brat Pack. So I was like, somebody might actually do this. I'm not laughing at you if you do it. It's just like, for me, it was just like, this is a thing you could do. And I, <clears throat> so while I was in school doing other things and journalism and all that other stuff, I always sort of had in the back of my mind, I would go to film school at some point. I just really didn't think it would happen immediately after college. <laughs> just out of curiosity, what was your, what was your mom's background that really drew her into movies and stuff like that? She was a, she's a speech therapist, um, but she always loved drama in high school. So she, in the story that she tells, I don't know how true this is, but she says that when she, she went to college for speech and drama, but she only said speech thinking that that translated and to the people who were decide, who were writing down her major that translated to them as calm disorders. So she ended up in speech therapy and it was a little slow. She was a little slow on the uptake. So she didn't realize it until she was 
too far along to get back. And so that was like a very healthy, happy accident, I guess, because she enjoys that. But she started out as a speech and drama. And my grandmother, well, I guess my great grandmother, her grandmother, they would watch soap operas together. They watched all of them, all of the, all of the things. And so I think she just always sort of had a very healthy appreciation for television. So it just sort of carried on. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, my parents were, it was weird. We had cable in my room and yet they were very strange about certain types of content. Like I remember like, you know, when you're like a 12 year old boy, you're like, yeah. and you have HBO, you're like, Oh, real sex. What is this? Right. Exactly. And, and like, but they, but their hangups were more like obviously violent. So like, I, I remember being a kid and they were watching Pulp Fiction and they wouldn't let me watch it, but I could clearly hear the entire film from right. like the neighboring room. And so yeah. I set up this like weird mental image of what this movie was actually about before I got to sit down and see it. So it was, it was violence. And then it was, it was like movies about Satan. Like we aren't a super religious family, but they were, yeah. my mom had this like weird supernatural superstitious kind of like hang up where it was like watching the Stephen King's, the stand, the mini series, yeah. which is, you know, pretty tame that, that just gives credit to, you know, the devil and that empowers him. And it was like, those, those were the two things I couldn't watch. I relate like two things. The only thing I think she ever told me I could not watch and that she yet, yet she watched in my room was Eddie Murphy raw. And so I'm like outside of the door closed while she and her <laughs> sisters were watching Eddie Murphy raw. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I've watched all of these other things, Linda, why can't I watch this? And she was like, no, that's just too much. And also she did not like any sort of witchcrafty thing. Same reasons. It was like, but when I was heavy into Buffy the Vampire Slayer, she was just like, I just don't know about this show, Chris. And I was like, all these years? <laughs> it's too late now, sister. So she just has to be like, it's just not my thing. But yeah, no, I relate. I relate. That's funny. So tell me a little bit about your path through the Academy. You said you, you did a little bit of journalism, but you obviously knew coming in that you wanted to be a film major. I've, I've, a lot of the different guests I've had have kind of happened upon film. They may have had an interest in it. Um, but then they were English majors who maybe took a film elective, and then all of a sudden the light bulb went off. How did you kind of discover the discipline? What what classes did you take? What people did you have who really kind of turned you on to it? So I went to LSU, and I was a computer engineering major when I first started. Uh, <laughs> literally a semester. I was like, I'm gonna do this. I can do it. I don't really love math. I don't really love science, but it's enough. I'll come through. I'll have a couple gray hairs, but you know, I'll be wealthy. Like that was like my whole thing. I was trying to be rich. <laughs> All right. So, but I was trying to figure out a minor and uh, by this point I had switched over to journalism because I realized that computer engineering was not going to be the lifestyle I wanted. And I thought if I needed to find something with a trade that made sense, because my parents were like, you need to come out with a trade. Like, they were just real hardcore in that. So I was like, well, journalism seems to make sense. I wrote for the newspaper in high school. It wasn't a real newspaper, but I did something like a newspaper sure. in high school. And so I was like, well, this sounds like something I could do. And so I transferred into print journalism, but I needed a minor. And the minor, like, I was looking through trying to help my roommate figure out what she was going to do. And I discovered at the time it was called audiovisual arts. Uh, which is 
code for film. And so I was like, this is a thing. You could do this at LSU. Like, they have all these classes. It was an interdisciplinary program. It was based in the philosophy department, but it had classes all over. Hmm. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is, I was so excited. I was more excited about selecting my minor than I was about selecting the major. And I remember, like, going and telling the people, like, I can, I, I'm going to be a minor in ABA. And I thought it was going to be, like, like, bells and, like, congratulations and streamers and stuff and they were just like okay fine they clicked it put it typed it in and they were just like have a good day and I was like you don't understand this is everything and I like picked up my books and it was like the the Gianetti film book and then the Thompson and Borwell and Thompson film art and I'll never forget it had it was the gladiator years with the Warner Brothers frog on it and I was like you can study this like you can pick I can buy this book and read this book and I was so grateful and I was also extremely, um, like, I felt guilty about it because it felt like I was doing this very, like, um, subversive thing. Like, I'm not doing trades. I'm not studying journalism only. I'm sure. doing this other thing just because I, I want to. And so I was so grateful about the whole encounter that it was just everything I learned I was just like yes tell me this teach me that and philosophy and I, I mean I my first class was essentially like philosophy and film so we talked about Sartre and Streetcar Named Desire so I have, I have no idea I've never seen these movies these are not what I thought film was exactly um and so like learning that and watching what became one of my favorite movies The Passenger and just being like what is what the hell is who, what is Jack Nicholson doing? What is this window shot? I remember just being completely and totally overwhelmed with all of those things, but I also adored it. And I was like, this is, this is everything. Like my brain is just exploding from all these facts and all these ideas. And I started to learn what I called the nonsense, which was film jargon. It's like, you just, you, you say it enough and somehow it'll click. And I was like, I'm good at this nonsense. I'm good at this. I can do this. And so I just, so I, finished college and was I was gonna go to law I mean again trades I'm gonna go to law school I'm gonna go and like make some money and then I'll go to film school when I'm an older and you know that didn't work out and get any law school so I applied to film school and there were only two schools left because I was late applying and one of them was University of Arizona and that media their media arts program and so it just kind of took off from there Okay. Was your was your mom ambivalent when you said you were going to do a trade but also do film? Because, like, I know a lot of parents are just like, okay, we're just going to kind of smile, and you're going to be an English teacher someday if you're lucky, that's right. and that's that's what's going to happen. That's um, right. Was that the yeah. reaction? <laughs> no. She was – both my parents were kind of just like, as long as you figure it out. Like, okay. you just need to figure it out. Like, just – figure out what the next step is. And so when I was uh, figuring out like, okay, I didn't get any law schools. What am I supposed to do? My dad was just like, girl, figure it out. My mother was like, well, I mean, what would you want to do for film or for grad school? And I was like, well, I don't want to go to journalism school because that doesn't make sense. I don't want to be a journalist. I knew that by that point, talking to people, running after people made me nervous. I hated it. Yeah. I knew I didn't want to do it. I was like, I liked some things and some things in journalism school that I learned I use now every day so I was grateful for it but I didn't at the time think that that was something I wanted to do professionally and it was the night it was like 2003 so this is before the like online journalism and BuzzFeed and all those things where people were making money sure. so people were making like 15 16 17 thousand dollars so it wasn't it did not make fiscal 
make financial sense to me. Uh, but somehow grad school made sense. So I went that way and they were okay with it as long as I sort of had like a, well, maybe after I do this program, I'll get my life, get myself together. I'll be a better writer. I'll have, I will have figured out how to do this LSAT and I'll go to law school that way. Little did they know it was just going to keep going. <laughs> and so, yeah, at some point when they were just like, I'm going to PhD school, they were like, yeah, okay. I mean, all right, go do it. And so that was every, they were mostly calm, mostly. Yeah, my parents, when I got in, I, I was going to go to Columbia College, uh, the, the private one in Chicago initially. Yeah. And I remember like going to visit the campus and they got all these cameras and, you know, sound stages. And I'm like, this place is great. Then my parents like finally sat me down and they're like, this is how much tuition is. And I was like, I don't know what that number means. And they're like, that's like half of a house. Like, you know, <laughs> and I was like, oh, so that's going to be a no. And they're like, yeah, that's that's going to be a no. Like, you need to start thinking about this. But they didn't say a peep really until I was until I was done with my PhD. And then they kind of confessed to me. They were like, we thought you were going to be screwed. Like, you know, like we, we didn't want to say it. We you always have a find I'll find a way of landing on your feet. But, yeah, we were really worried about you, especially because, you know, I did journalism for a long time and thought that might be a fallback. And then very similar to you, I was like, there's yeah. there's no money in this. And it's it's yeah. really, really hard. And I don't want to be running after people all the time. Not at all. No. We call elected officials and get like quotes and oh my god my nerves were just always shot so sitting like, at like city council meetings yeah yes, that's horrible yes. no not my <laughs> life not a life choice i would continue pick for myself <laughs> well let's talk a little bit about your research um so you you've written a bit on um obviously your main subject is television and you've worked on colorblind casting and your more recent works on plastic representation um how do these two concepts kind of interact are they the same idea how would you kind of differentiate them or define them for people who may not be familiar with them? Uh, let's see. So I would say to start that I think that one begets the other. I think colorblind casting, one, one of the sort of byproducts of it is this idea of image above substance. I think that that becomes sort of like the goal of colorblind, what the, the unintentional goal of colorblind casting is. And I think the way that we can sort of reevaluate what that looks like or how that has become an appreciated value is through plastic representation, if that makes sense. So when I started looking at colorblind casting when I was a, a, a grad student and I was watching Grey's Anatomy and trying to understand what Shonda Rhimes is doing, like she has all, you know, this very multiracial cast, but race doesn't really get brought up in ways that it probably when it should be. And is that, and then, you know, the fact that she's, doing that on purpose um, and she's making these choices because in her mind that you know if she can make this utopic appeal something that people can connect to then maybe they'll treat themselves treat others different in their real life or whatever her logic was right so there was like a start to that and and with the with the colorblind casting and then it just sort of continued to sort of swell once I went from just doing textual analysis of the show, TV shows, and actually interviewing people and uh, going to LA and talking to union members and guild representatives and casting directors, which became sort of like the, 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 the cornerstone of the project really, was talking to different cast, casting directors and really trying to get a sense of, 
you know, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that this means to you? What does best person for the job mean to you? And I think that really sort of set me up for what other things I would be doing in terms of my research um, trajectory. So the casting, the colorblind casting project sort of spurred me into thinking about casting in a whole different variety of ways from the actual act of, of, of doing the colorblind casting, which in, to just define briefly, because I've sort of talked around it, colorblind casting is the act of uh, assigning parts and, and roles um, for people to audition for, but not adding race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, or any of those things to the, the, to the part. So you're potentially opening up the audition space for a variety of different types which theoretically is good and has a sound sort of logic to it that you're trying to increase, you know, visual diversity uh, in a a myriad of ways. The downside is that when the person of color or the ethnic origin or sexuality or gender or whatever takes up the part, the part is not, if the part is not adjusted to the person's body or to the person's experience, you end up creating what I call pitfalls for them. In other words, that they will and then unintentionally walk into a trope because bodies of color, bodies of difference, all have different kinds of lived experiences. And so if you're writing normatively, which is what I would argue most of those screenplays are, most of those scripts are, you know, you're writing for a, a, prim- a primarily normative, heterosexual white person, well, then, you know, you're going to have some issues, you know, like the things that you can do uh, when you have an infinite number of representations, an infinite number of people who you can be that are acceptable and that we can sort of just buy because whiteness is normative. Uh, When you put a person of color into that part, for example, and you're not thinking about the fact that their representations become extremely finite, that there are maybe five or 10 different tropes that circulate constantly uh, around those bodies, that if you're not careful to adjust for it, that person can easily fall into that pitfall and, and fall into a trope. So you may not mean to, for example, take your, you know, black lead, um, the chief resident, you know, you may not mean for her to become a mammy, but if you don't actually let her leave the hospital, if you don't actually give her a relationship, like you give the other characters relationships, if you don't actually give her any of those things and you make her her costume blend in with the walls of the hospital, then you are, in fact, recreating a very kind of new mammy. And so in some ways, that's what Shonda did with, you know, Dr. Bailey, for example, in Grey's Anatomy. So those are like the, the accidental pitfalls when you don't mean to. It's certainly not intentional or, or malicious, but the, the impact is still the same. And so that became sort of what that project was. And from that project, I was really interested in and, and, and talking with people, I was really interested in the ways that people defended the choice to be colorblind cast. Like it is about, um, it was about spreading visual diversity. It was about be reflecting the American scene and having people look like they look when you walk out your front door. That was very, very, that was this mandate that at all the unions, all the guilds, all the casting directors sort of sort of rallied behind. And so they would say, well, we can't regulate content. We won't regulate content, you know, so, but, but we do believe that there should be difference. And that is the thing that we're pushing for. Can you just make as much difference as you can on TV and we'll just deal with the rest. And those conversations I think were the ones that 
spawned so many other conversations, I think, and, and, and thinking about what kinds of decisions, what kinds of choices, who gets to, you know, what, who benefits most from these kinds of mandates and what are the sort of unspoken policies in place with that. So that led me down a path toward talking about precarious labor. And then I was then being on Twitter and, uh, which is a its own wonderful <laughs> space where you learn so many things about people and what they know. And everybody became Twitter expert. Every all Twitter experts became experts in film and television and representation. And within the last ten years, it's just fascinating to watch. But one of the things I started to notice was like how that value of we can be anything, and if you can just put the body in the in the role, then you've done justice to the role. That somehow became emblematic as this representation matters discourse started to emerge and everybody's just dressing their kids up like the people in hidden figures or like like Ray in the Star Wars movies or you know uh or like Wonder Woman and these are fine things to do I I get the impulse behind it but it was but there's so much more to this that I think is not happening. There's so much more to the story than what was being said in terms of like, well, there's a white, a woman and a black man in the leads of these movies that when they're making a billion dollars, that means representation is mattering. And when in fact, uh, I mean, they the movies are going to sure. make a billion dollars on the first one in particular, they probably ran the numbers and were like, we can, we can have some variables here. We have enough room to sort of stretch what we can do. So why don't we add a black man and why don't we add a, a white woman to these parts? Because they're not going to necessarily mess with the equation. Rather than thinking about it sort of long-term with questions about conglomeration and power and intellectual property, we stopped at like, there's a black man and a white lady. And so that struck me as very hollow reads and very hollow reads of representation and signaled this thing that felt very plastic to me. And and I, when I think about plastic, my little gag is that it's very much based in thinking about David Bowie and his idea of plastic soul and how he was just like, I can't replicate this soul music that I'm really interested in and that I want to try and make, but my mimicry is, and so what I'm doing is intentionally mimicry. He is at least acknowledging the mimicry. He's at least sure. acknowledging that he can never sort of get to the authentic. Plastic representation, in the way that I describe it, flips that and says it's the mimicry is treated as authentic and as opposed to as mimicry. And we should, we are, we are in some ways doomed if we don't figure out how to get from around it. So yeah, all all of that. Well, I think of a movie like the the Paul Feige version of Ghostbusters. Oh God, where, where it's like, I mean. Yeah, on one hand, I can admire its social mission, its agenda to be like, yep, we're going to put women in this movie, and we're going to reverse some of these gender stereotypes. And I look at it, and I was like, yeah, you, some of this is funny, and some of this is really well done, and I love Kate McKinnon. But the, the Leslie Jones character, there's just like a complete myopia to how she perpetuates you know, caricatures of, of African-American women and right. isn't mindful of that at all. And yet it does become this... Um, for most people on, on Twitter or in, you know, like armchair media studies, well, it checked off my one box. That's all that matters. I'm moving yeah. on. This is a woke movie. Awesome. It's great. 
Absolutely. And I mean, the same with um, Ocean's 8. Yeah. I, you know, it's the same sort of logic where it's like, I remember when the first still photo of them in the subway car came and everybody was like, oh my God, I love this movie so much. You don't know anything about the story, don't know anything about the plot, don't know anything except that you see all these women in the subway car and they all, they're, they're, they have different bodies and different looks and Rihanna. And that must mean that, you know, that parody has been achieved. We now have this really fun uh, series and, and in fact they didn't really do no. the things that they could have done like the, the 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 smartness and the richness of the experiences of these women could have been um pulled more could have been em- embellished and enriched and instead of that they were just like we got some women we got oceans but it's with women and it's like well what's the difference just give us the men then like if that's the case if, you're, if there's not going to be anything different than this stick with the original crew because you do a disservice to what these women who these women could be and is it the if i remember right i saw it on a plane a while ago and i remember being <laughs> incredibly disappointed by it but is it the whole conceit for the con like she's trying to get back at an ex like it's very kind yeah. of you know yeah. rote yeah it's like in the whole while you're just like i mean is like are we gonna get a camp i mean when you're watching the movie and you're constantly looking for cameos from the original Ocean's cast, that's bad. Like, you should, I shouldn't be thinking, like, is Danny Ocean going to pop up at some point? Are we going to see Clooney at some point? Is, you know, like, it's, you, when it becomes about just flipping the gender and not actually thinking about the experiences of who these women are and what, what women actually might want to see about themselves and a story about them and a heist, yeah, I mean, I think it, you you deserve more, but we just get stuck. We just get stuck. Well, that starts to kind of wonderfully lead into um, a question I have about how this topic of plastic representation and colorblindness overlaps with another Steven Soderbergh movie we both really, really love. Um <laughs> Which is Magic Mike Extra Extra Large. And I know you've just published something on it. Unfortunately, I haven't read it yet, but I did see your video on it. So I'm kind of curious to see um, how you feel like that film maybe complicates or plays into some of these tropes. I'm thinking about the ways that Soderbergh, who didn't direct that film, but he certainly shot it. And you can see his imprints on it. Uh, lit black bodies and the types of women we see at the uh, at the strip club that uh, Jada Pinkett Smith runs. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think that movie is, the, for me, the opposite of plastic representation. I think it is the height of visibility in a really uh, a, a cute number of ways. I think it hits the sensibilities, not just, I think, well, let me first say, when I think we talk about visibility, I think we are literally talking, we very clearly and very explicitly, and maybe a bit too, um, I, maybe I'm it's a bit pedantically, we're thinking about it purely in the sense of vision, right? I see myself, hmm. I and thus I am represented. There are bodies that look like mine, thus I am represented. But I feel like that's a really, again, a plastic and a slightly hollow way of thinking about visibility. Visibility should be something where it's not just that you see or see yourself represented visually, but that you hear that the things that, that, that are happening, they collide in terms of your knowledge base and in terms of your experiences. And so it should be, it's both visual but also auditory and so i'm interested in how does that not how does someone knowing who you are both in terms of what you look like but also what you like what you like to hear how those things can actually create what i call resonance because you know when we talk in media studies about authenticity we know that there is no such thing right 
that that is what is authentic, what is to, to be real. So we have to switch up and use different words. The words I like are resonance. I like things that somehow connect that sort of I can, and that res, I can respond to sort of like, you know, like the idea of being uh, interpolated into a text, be hailed into a thing. Like it calls me, I hear it and I respond to the call. I like that idea. And I like that magic Mike XXL somehow un, unlike, I mean, in a very different way than the first movie. The first first movie is doing whatever Soderbergh is doing, <laughs> whatever his interests are. You know, you can see moments where he sort of is curious about this or curious about that, but mostly it's, you know, he's talking about economic straits and recessions sure. and bodies and blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, Greg Jacobs and Reed Carol, Carolyn, and, you know, like I think they take a different tack in the second one. And I think the question is, what if we stripped away all that other stuff? And what if we were just trying to focus on feel? What if we just try to figure out how to connect with as many different kinds of women as we could? What would that look like? And so I think the movie gives you the visual representation. It gives you older white women. It gives you black women in the South. It gives you uh, gay men representation. It gives you um, jaded white lady representation. I mean, like all these different kinds of looks you get within the, the film. But I think there's also something to be said about the auditory component and how it is the thing that sort of makes the visual, makes the visibility much more holistic. And in the sense of the dominant scene that you're talking about in particular, when the, you know, the, the Kings of Tampa go to Savannah sure. and they make their way to Jada Pinkett Smith's uh, subscription, like uh, strip club service. Um, and they're walking through these hallways, seeing these black men entertain these primarily black women. I mean, I think there may be some different bodies, but primarily dark-skinned women, black women at night, which is not a thing I've ever seen before, like mediated. I've just, it's never, it's not the iconic, the iconography is not familiar and it's certainly not mainstream. So that in and of itself is certainly something to, to you know, tip your hat at. But the music that they're playing um, is the thing that really sort of brought it home for me that this is my story, that this could be for me. And when, in particular, the story I always go through, I was sitting in a movie theater with my sister and, and on 4th of July weekend, and suddenly we're watching the Domino scene, and suddenly um, Jodeci's Freaking You comes on, and it's like, wait, how do you know this song? Like, how do you... <laughs> You, where did you pull this from? Because in all the years of watching TV and all the years of watching movies, Jodeci never comes up. Jodeci is not, is I don't think they're an underground or an obscure band, but they are very particular sure. within the niche of like R&B and like 90s black folk culture. So it's a very specific, very like, you know who these women are reference. Mm -hmm. And that I sat up in my chair and I was like, oh, Jesus, you, this movie, <laughs> this movie is like, this is for you. You can relate. This is, you don't have to feel like you have to find, you don't have to find your way to identify. You don't have to disidentify like, you know, uh, Jose Munoz talks about, like, you don't have to do any of that. This is just for you as a 30 something year old black woman from the South who listened to Jodeci when you were a teenager, this is yours. And it was just amazing. Like every drop of that scene from 
that point on to the end, I was committed. Like whatever they wanted me to believe, I was there for Drew. So I was game. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, this is what visibility is. This is how representation can matter because it becomes about not just the seeing myself. And I, I certainly did. There were, you know, all different sizes of black women being entertained and and not made the butt of the joke and being like wanting to be pleased. That was cool. But the hearing of the soundtrack in, in, in uh, complimenting that really was like, oh, this is what this can feel like. And so I think throughout the course of the film, you know, up, you know, they go to Charleston and they're hanging out with Andy McDowell and the divorce squad. And like, I tell the story about how my mother saw the movie with her exercise gang and they were, uh, she was the only black lady in the group. And they all sat and watched that scene and they all cried. They all cried. Sure. They cried throughout the scene when she's like, my husband doesn't like to, to make love without the lights on. My, like she was like, they all sat there in the audience and just sat there and teared up. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And there is an, and then he sings heaven and they all just sort of like joyously sing along. And I was like that, oh, I see. So it's the same. It's just different groups, different demographics. And so that again, harken back to this idea like what does because everybody always wants an answer to what's the opposite of plastic representation like well what's what what is it supposed to look like and there is no whole like there is no there are no tons of answers but one of the responses i would always say is just go watch magic mike xxl just go watch it because it, somehow it knows how to get you, even if it's to make you, if you feel uncomfortable because you've never been addressed, which I've heard women tell me, like when they watch this, the movie, they're like, I'm just completely uncomfortable. My, I don't know what to do with myself. I feel like they can see me and that makes me feel strange. And so like, how does it feel to be actually called? Becomes the question. And I, I think that if anything, that makes it much more meaningful uh, and much more uh, evidence of that it is an actual artifact of what representation mattering can look like. So yeah, I find MMXL to be just uh, just a, 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 an unexhaustive resource to just tap into each, each and every time I watch it, which is probably like 28 times at this point. I, I teach it every semester, and my experience yeah. seeing it in theaters was very similar to yours. I, I had gone, this was when Nicole was working at the DGA, it was one of their summer screenings, I think it was at like 7 o'clock, so everyone had kind of worked, it was 5.30, and they're like, yeah. let's go get a couple margaritas. I, of course, yeah. want to go, because I'm like, I like the Soderbergh thing, and I'm interested, I like the first movie quite a bit, and I was in that theater, I think I was the only man in that yeah. theater i was probably the if there if there were other men i was probably the only straight man and it was yeah. th that theater i've never seen a theater have so much fun with a movie yes and, and so when i teach it for me what i find so fascinating about it um i use it as kind of a, a way to complicate mulvey is yeah. like how it democratizes pleasure and yes. how there's moments where like um What's his last name? I can't think about it. The the, the scene in the in the thrifts the, the grocery store, the Seven oh, Eleven. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where he's performing, right? And yes, it's framed through the the untraditional gaze of you know a, a more kind of normal looking woman, right? She's yeah. not up size zero. Um, she's not wearing a lot of makeup. She's she's yeah. a normal woman. It's framed through her experience, but it's also framed through all yes. the guys outside looking through the yes. window who are just like yes. enjoying watching somebody take pride in what they do. 
And to me, yes. that's what's so interesting about that movie is like what Mike's telling all of them. One of the themes of the movie, right? Even if it's, it's kind of superficial because there's so many of them is to find yes. something that they connect with outside of work that gives them joy and to bring that into the, yes. into the, the work that they do. But yeah, I mean, that scene that you, you were talking about at Jada Pinkett Smith's, the different types of bodies we see getting pleasure. I think of a contrast being in that first movie when Tarzan picks up the bachelorette and he like throws his back out and it's, she's right. the subject of a joke because she's a little heavier. Um, whereas the, the woman that Michael Strahan, who again, isn't necessarily yes. your ideal of a man, you know, the, the, the okay. gap teeth kind yeah, of stereotype. Exactly. Exactly. The athleticism is the only yeah. thing that works. Exactly. Yeah. And she is not ridiculed in the slightest. And no. so, yeah, no, I, I, I really love magic. Mike for it, all those reasons. It is, it is. I mean, I saw it three times in the theater in different theaters and each time I saw it with a different audience, like it would be like some, one time it was real still and no one knew what to do. And so I was like, well, what if I just sort of cheer? What if I started? <laughs> what will they do? And so I would be in the back and just root and clap and cheer. And, and suddenly you would get like a lot of like, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> but generally it, walking out of the theater each time, it was like being high. It was just, you were like the the adrenaline runs through you in such this really sort of way that you, like it's this open the secret that you all share when you leave the theater and I find that I mean like that movie is just it's just it's fun in a very in and very sort of inviting and very freeing and it doesn't judge you I mean this movie premise is so simple like can you I want to we we like to see women smile done like let's see how that can happen. I, it's 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 a brilliant premise. I hope that they make another. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that movie. Um, so <laughs> pivoting off of this, I'm I'm curious. You and I have talked a bit on Twitter and and personally about the work of Soderbergh. So I'm curious about what draws you to his his work generally. You know, I think I I remember watching Sex Lines videotape again. I was five cable, right? But. <laughs> I remember watching it and being so intrigued by the premise of it and by the title of it that I didn't know if it was something I could actually bring myself to watch. And then watching it, and I was at that point uh, eight, I had no idea really what I was looking at. And I, I think I missed it. But I remember when I was in grad school, I was TAing a class and they watched it. And so it was the first time I had seen it in a number of years. And I remember thinking, oh, this movie, this movie is so smart. And this movie is doing so many interesting little things these little tidbits that you just watch and you go back and you look at it again and go oh i didn't realize that it so i appreciate his like the eye i appreciate his ability to sort of dive into these very simple situations and sort of make the mountain out of the molehill but it's like the best kind of idea of making a mountain out of a molehill molehill and i i like that i like the little stories that he tells um and I, in general, I think I appreciate the fact that he's kind of a journeyman. I do like the fact he does all his own stuff. I like there's something about the ability that he can just sort of go in and start cutting and editing his own stuff after he shoots it earlier in the day. That's refreshing and that shows skill and heft and ability that I think we are largely missing in current sort of film television scape. I think everybody likes shiny stuff, but people don't sort of take pride in the craft and the way that he uh, the ways that he does so i mean I, I i do i have like a real strong bias for like for him yeah no i think that kind of sums up a lot of my pleasures with him too i got into him um i saw out of sight 
I was in the hospital. I had this kind of Martin Scorsese summer where my appendix broke and I was misdiagnosed. <laughs> and so for three weeks, I had a broken appendix and everyone just thought I had the flu. Oh, and so God. they figured it out and they're like, holy shit, this is this is bad. So like they put me in a hospital. This was the summer between eighth grade and freshman year of high school. And it was the same summer that that AFI list came out. So I was watching all these movies in the hospital that I was catching up on, things like The Godfather and such. And I kept seeing this trailer for Out of Sight. And I'm like, I like the way this movie looks. I like the kind of 70s vibe of it. I didn't really have that vocabulary for it at the time. But it felt like out of place and kind of sexy. And I was like, I want to see this movie. This is going to be the first movie I see when I get the hell out of here. And... I, I saw it and I was like, wow, this is this, you know, I, of course, seen Tarantino movies. So I kept thinking about it in relation to that. Um, but it made me go back and watch the rest of his, his films. And, yeah. you know, I, I won't say that I loved Sex Lies. The first Sex Lies is I, I, I don't know. I, I'm surprised that you kind of hit on it as such a, a young person, because like Sex Lies is one of those movies now that I've been married a long time and have been with someone. I was like, <laughs> I understand a lot of the humor about this a lot better now. <laughs> <laughs> but it, not not to not to put that in the wrong direction, but it, it requires a certain like literacy of life to kind of appreciate on yeah, a lot of different levels. True. Um, but yeah, what I've always kind of been drawn to with his movies is his ability to kind of bait and switch, where he'll take an art movie and put a star in it and Trojan horse your expectations. Yeah. Or he'll yeah. you know take. You know, a Hollywood movie like Oceans, which, you know, and then we're just going to do some weird kind of formal fuckery here. Yeah, yeah, like Oceans. Is, I don't love Oceans 12, but it's always a pleasure I to kind of watch I it. I thought about this. <laughs> I just, I, the, the script drives me nuts, but it is so much fun to watch. And I've never yeah. really, you don't see any movies that really do what that movie does, which is, it's, it, it is very much of like that 1960s moment where it's like, we're just going to follow people on, like, a vacation. and see. Vacation? Yeah. <laughs> what would it look like if Brad Pitt and George Clooney go on vacation together? Yeah. They watch a lot of Dean Martin and then middle of the night and eat. Like, <laughs> who's mad? <laughs> yeah, you know, that was, it's it's fun. That yeah, I do. I enjoy when he does those things. I do. I do. So I'm going to give a real brief plot summary of side effects to kind of okay. keep people up. Uh, I hope I can remember. This one's this one's twisty, so this might be it a little is. difficult. I was like, whoa. I hadn't... <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's been maybe I, – I watched it towards the beginning of summer when we were talking about it. So yeah. if, I'm, if I'm a little cow-webby or there's something you want to butt in on, uh, feel free. So essentially mm -hmm. it's the story of Emily Rooney Mara. I can't remember what she does, but she's essentially – um, kind of a stay-at-home wife for the most part to Martin, who's played by Channing Tatum, who is a day trader who has just gotten out of jail. Um, we see that Emily's kind of having some psychological problems, dealing with depression and anxiety. Uh, she goes to see uh, different psychiatrists. Um, Jude Law's character, Jonathan, he prescribes her uh, an antidepressant, and in perhaps the, uh, the 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 fog of taking an antidepressant she kills martin and so the bulk of the film is really about if she's actually you know intoxicated and suffering a side effect from this medication or if it's a ruse or or what exactly it is and along the way uh, her former doctor victoria played by Catherine zeta jones comes in and it really by the end of the film becomes this kind of the palm-esque you know, mm -hmm. kind of love triangle in which she, Emily and uh, Victoria are kind of taking Jude Law along for the ride and trying to set him up as a, 
a patsy for this scheme in which they're going to exploit all this, you know, this murder for, for money and such. Um, so I'm curious, did, did you, did you like the movie? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when she kills Ju, when she kills Channing Tatum, I was like, Oh wait, like I had to stop and pause for it. Oh yeah. Oh, you didn't know that. Okay. No, I did not. I thought it I, I like, thought it oh, showed it in the trailers or at least foreshadowed it pretty overtly so I couldn't remember. I could I I I think that was one of the few that I didn't sit and study like the trailers all that closely. I think I, that was in the phase where I sort of was like hovering with 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 Soderbergh. Like I wasn't watching everything at at the time. Okay. So I don't think I paid much much attention to it and so i was like oh jesus she kills and like and not just <laughs> once or twice that girl like slap like stabs him with a giant <laughs> i felt so bad for channing um i love how i love how soderbergh uses channing tatum though yes right yes. so you, yeah and in both ways right he'll he'll use magic mike movies to kind of prop yes. him up and turn him into this you know this yes. beautiful star and then haywire he gets his ass kicked and he's a bumbling idiot and i think he gets killed and in here he gets stabbed to death 20 minutes in he's just like a like this really gentle lump like he's <laughs> i mean there's he's he's in the movie and you know he can you can tell he really loves his wife and you know he's just he might be a bit you know prideful and arrogant and he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of regrets about insider trading and going to jail but you know like he 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 deeply loves Emily so the fact that they take this lovable lump and like in three long stabs I mean he's out of the picture with like a the the, the last shot of him is him being zipped up <laughs> it's like oh god this is a trip um I liked it I did. I it did have like I did think about the palm. I for some reason I kept thinking about that Primal Fear movie because I was like, mm. oh, this is like that. That it feels a lot like that. Where it's like, is it fake? Is it real? Is it, or and <clears throat> I think I think the one thing I would have liked to see him do more of is to up the sexiness of it, mm. um, which would have made it feel more like those '90s sex thrillers than than what it actually was. Because I think when I was reading some reviews about it today, there seemed to be a lot of dissonance, like dissonance between like, we thought it was supposed to be this prescription drug message movie. And then it turns out to be this psychological thriller thing. I think probably if he had figured out how to do more of the sexiness up front, I mean, certainly the twist is like, whoo, Catherine Zeta-Jones, but <laughs> it would have probably been more fun if they had done a little bit more in the inner, inner in, in between and then it would have felt more like, you know, Richard Gere and Kim Basinger and Final Analysis or whatever, sure. you know, than in then the Jude Law sort of, he's just a benevolent good white guy, and here's this girl who's just sort of like, is she real? Is she not? I, I felt like that could have been. I would have liked more more De Palma in that respect. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. Rewatching it, I I love aspects of it. I love the. I actually really like the score. Mm -hmm. it's, I find it very kind of haunting and I'm not a huge fan of Rooney Mara mainly because I always feel like when I see her perform she always plays the role that she's playing in side effects where it is like this this morally ambiguous blank slate which I think he uses quite well here mm -hmm. but yeah like he's there's something about Soderbergh's movies with Scott Burns who, who wrote yeah. Contagion and I think he wrote a couple other ones where they constantly do this like setup that they're going to be about like 
I think Contagion has that moment where it's like it's about media and sensationalism right. about diseases, and it's like they they always try to put like too many entrees on the plate and it's it's interesting and it's never like bad but it's just like one of them falls off and never quite gets the payoff that it deserves um so he needs to do so many MacGuffin like it's just it's like the weirdest MacGuffin and where it's like you want us to think it's x but it's actually really y and y is just really much more interesting and it's like people kept thinking this is going to be like traffic and then it's not like traffic at all yeah <laughs> and, it, and 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 he goes too long with it where it is yeah. like you know like by like the end of the first act that it's probably bullshit you know you've gotten too right. many like i think of a shot like when she's on the the track the uh the subway platform and it yeah. looks you know there's that shot of the policeman's badge and i'm like yeah, this is this yeah. is too obvious of foreshadowing. I know there's going to be something about this later on. There's going to be a test, and uh, yeah, this exactly. isn't going to exactly. Well, when she just in the following scene, when she just shows up, you know, where he and his wife, where Jula and his wife are having mm-hmm. lunch, and you're just like, yeah, how did you know that man was? How did you like these? Like the questions start to tick, and you're just like, oh well, maybe this isn't going to quite. I thought, okay, they're going to up the sex thriller here, and she's going to be obsessed with him. Yeah. And... That's where I thought it was going. It didn't go there either, though. <laughs> and it, and it's weird because it's not like Soderbergh can't do, like, sexy. Like, you know, obviously out of sight or even something out like Solaris. Solaris is really, you know, kind yeah. of primal, which I, I rewatched it a couple yeah. years ago. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of heart in this movie, even though right. it's, you know, it kind of holds you at arm's length. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it did strike me as kind of some strange decisions that he had made on that film. Um, but what what do you see in the film that kind of brings out those those aspects that you appreciate about him and his other movies? Do you see much of that? I, I think I think he what is it I would say? I think there's something about he I always appreciate and again this I guess this goes back to sex lives. I always appreciate how he what he does with couples and relationships, like the conversations that they have, like you know, Channing and Emily talking about, you know, going to Houston. It's it's much more abbreviated in in this film, but uh, there's something about it that is like you're like the the rhythm of the conversation and the ways that he films their looks, and oftentimes they're not even looking at each other. I think that that is something that is fairly specific to him. I think he does that a lot across his movies with with regard to how he talks with regard to the relationships and so i i i appreciated that um this movie i it's it was it's it's weird because i i remember there were i have probably more things that didn't feel like soderbergh than i did like that felt like him like there was that one random moment where Catherine zeta jones is fussing at jula and she says go back and you can you can get her out of the insane asylum and you can go back into you know um counseling your rich white people and i was like where does this line come from like that did not feel like a soderbergh kind of task like i was like where did that where who, who where does this come from because yeah it's an it's obvious fact but it's not too on the nose yeah it, it approaches yeah, it too directly she's in greenwich so like i did i was like who, who's going <laughs> Who's gonna protest who about talking to rich white people, um, Catherine? So there was these moments where I was like, I don't quite. I think you're trying to again, like you said, put too many things on the tray, and I think that was one of those where he was trying to add something to the dish. And I was like, you made this movie about this. You made this movie about white woman innocence. 
see it through, you know, like actually, I mean, if he had, and if the, the joke would have been about white women, white women's innocence and how we believe, I mean, I certainly was caught up in it. I was like, oh, poor Emily. She's crying outside with Mamie Gummer. I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I bought all of it. I did. He's very good at sort of giving you like all this context and all this exposition. But if see it through. And I think that was the frustration that I had is that he wanted to have his cake and eat it too in that. And he didn't earn it enough to be able to do it. This story is about what happens when white women are heard and what they can do when they when they, how they can use that innocence to their advantage. That is the story of side effects. Um, and that was the thing that, that needed to be really driven home. And I think he spent half a second too long on something else. And so I was just, that bot that vexed me. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, also, he did not use Ann Dowd nearly as much as he should have. And that bothers me because she is so good i forgot she was in there until i rewatched it because I, I think it had come out before handmaid's tale you know right. and then yeah it was like whoa she's in here i totally forgot about that yeah she gets like maybe one scene just i was like and she gets she gets to slap her and i was like yes give me more <laughs> give me more and out like come on use her but he just uh, he doesn't uh. I can't remember. So the the choice we had was this or what? Do you remember what the or was? It was another Soderbergh movie, but I can't remember it was, what it was. It was either side effects or girlfriend experience. Oh, that's right. So, so had have you seen Unsane? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Because I I feel like this is the movie you kind of wanted. I feel like Unsane oh. does the kind of pulpy thriller better than side effects does. Really? It's it's very. I mean, again, he still tries to do some things with, like, the state of the meta. I mean, there's just always this interest in Soderbergh movies where he wants to deal with, like, structures and where they get their power from. Um, so there's some of that in, in Unsane about, like, how you get um, committed to an asylum and who has power over you once you're in it and how what are the processes for getting out. And this this one guy's kind of pulling um, – what's the Sam Fuller movie where he goes uh, – is it Naked Kiss? where he's inside the insane asylum and he's trying to do like an expose. Um, there's a little bit of that in Unsane, but it's it's shot, it's mainly just a stalker movie. And it's shot like, almost like an exploitation film because he's using that that iPhone. That's and there's right. this one scene, I, I won't spoil it, That's it's all in like one scene where this, one take where this woman confronts uh, the guy who's been stalking her. And it's, it's like, it's very... It's very nerve-wracking. It's very okay. anxiety-inducing. Uh, also, a movie with a very distracting Soderbergh cameo. Sometimes he just picks these people out, and I'm like, yeah, Why? like yeah, like I'm like, the, I mean, I, I, I like again, I like his playfulness with star images. Like when you were talking about Channing Tatum getting zipped up, I thought of Gwyneth Paltrow and Contagion, where it's like yep. we're just gonna like cut her, you know, skull open right, right on camera, right, right, right. <laughs> and that's gonna be the last. <laughs> He's like, I know what your pleasures are. I will take them from you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll cast Jude Law and give him, like, doesn't he have horrible teeth in Contagion? Or Matt, you oh, know, God. Matt Damon and uh, the informant and give him, a, you know, just His the worst hair. hair. Yeah, you know, he, he loves hair. doing that. <laughs> he's mean-spirited. I think I also enjoy that he's also mildly petty. I think his person. I think his brand matches with, like, my temperament like he's just excessively petty in ways that i appreciate like i'm not coming to sundance i'm going to slam dance i still hate you robert like i just <laughs> i love that's the shit that i love like 
I love the movies, but I love his like he's just I give no shits kind of persona. I appreciate that. Yeah, no. Whenever he does an interview, I always feel like he's one of the smartest people in Hollywood when it comes to th- you know thinking about distribution or how much yeah. money we spend on advertising. Almost any time he does one of those epic interviews, and I mean. I got to interview him one time when I did this book called The Philosophy of Steven Soderbergh, and I was like, he's not going to say yes. And the guy was just like, I'll talk to you for as long as you want. You want to talk about this? He was extremely generous with his time, but he also just had a willingness to kind of go all over the map and, you know, be really thoughtful about it. It was never like a super, you know, real superficial or canned answer. It was something that he actively tried to put thought into. Um, Have you seen High Flying Bird yet? Yes, I did see that. What would you think of that? If Stephen does not do theater very well, and I felt like, like I could, I can never. He is not, he is not, you know, Brechtian in that respect. Like that is not his skill set. I, I think he is extremely visual minded, and so I think the script felt very theatrical, mm. very performative in that way. And I just never thought Stephen could get there with it so without it looking like he was doing everything in proscenium style and i was just so i was so in terms of the aesthetic like the it 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 just didn't feel like a soderbergh film to me it felt much more like he was recording something from the stage which was was odd but i thought it was lovely i mean i liked some of the points that were made in the movie yeah, it was it was one of the tough ones for me where again, he loves thinking about power and who has it mm-hmm. and how that functions in society, but I'm like, I'm not a sports guy. I don't know what the hell's going on here. Like right. I almost it was so inside baseball like it reminded me of what his Moneyball would have looked like where it's like, wow, this oh, is God, this is deep right. in the weeds. Like, okay, that's... we're going to we're going to like really turn this into a stats game or we're going to do that. Okay, all right. Like I'll I'll try to follow you, but yeah, it's like <laughs> I, I, it's a I, lot. I mean, there is a lot of like facts that I, I too don't know anything about sports. And I was like, there are a lot of facts here. And I think um, uh, the script was just had a very particular kind of, again, a performative theatrical sort of read to it. And I just, if you, if you, I think the danger is the money ball thing is if he gets too far into it, like if there's too many, if there are way more effects. There is exposition. He will like just drift toward that and forget about the whole, like, I need to show some things. I need to explain some things. He doesn't like to, he wants you to catch up with him. And I'm like, that doesn't always work. Yeah, no, it reminded me of like a David Mamet movie where it's yeah. like, we're just, we're going to use this lingo and just assume that context clues will be enough Everybody for you. Everybody knows it. You can pause. <laughs> I was like, no, you can't actually. We need to finish this. It's too long. Go on. Go on. Let's get done. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love his performances. I love the Knicks, so I am here for Andre Holland. But I just, but the Knicks was the Knicks is slow. <laughs> so I could catch, I could pick up with it as it went along. I didn't feel like I was being pulled by my by my hair yeah a little bit (laughs) bit. well any final thoughts on side effects or have we kind of hit on everything you wanted to talk about i think i think we have i think we have i mean i i think there are just i mean the the luxury moments i i think you know the 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 daydreams of her time away when she when she had all these means and all this money i've been that is the, the thing that I think I've been spending the most time with trying to 
like why did I like that sequence or those sequences? I, I think, you know, I think Soderbergh is very good. I mean, we've been talking about his sort of love to sort of talk about these macro structures. Um, I think he has as much joy in sort of like creating the illusion of, of like abundance and just as much joy pulling that away, like because of his love for macros, for structural inequities and whatnot. And so there's something about that I, that I find fascinating with, with it. Like it's these, these small little moments of joy that he's just like, I will pluck them all away from you. (laughs) And I do, I find that kind of satisfying. Well, it it makes me think about the girlfriend experience and and something that kind of comes up in like his last couple works. He's really one of the few filmmakers who's really dealt head on with the recession and in really kind of thoughtful ways. Um, Even something back to like Bubble, which I haven't seen since it came out, but like it's, it's kind of view of poverty. And its view of class. And, you know, to bring us back to Magic Mike, that first movie is entirely about how can this guy start a legitimate business when he's right. a stripper, you know? So how does how does capital work? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no he's there. Point. He, 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 it, it, that seems to be, if he has to do something in this later stage of his career, you know, even through the, what's the, what's the one he did with Channing and um, Adam Driver? What's that one? Um, oh, Logan Lucky. Logan Lucky, like I mean, it's yeah. it will be embedded in every project. I think at this point, like he's just in, like this is just where he's at. Where everybody needs to know, like the recession has 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 had a, a foothold in all of our lives in these very small or very large ways. And the things that you enjoy, the things that you took pride in, and the things that you thought were going to be yours forever, once you got, I mean, I think that line that she says in Side Effects is really kind of key. Once you believe that this, you could have everything and then it's taken away from you. And I was like, yep, that's like the, like, that is your, that is, that is his, like, his whole the crux of all of these films that's essentially what he's after that we all at some point believed that we had everything that we needed that we had this abundance and at the very moment that we believed it as opposed to recognizing it as this illusion right uh, it is snatched away from us and we are all sort of like emily trying to sort of veer between hustling and sadness fake sadness real sadness whatever to get to wherever we're trying to get to next yeah i I get that. I like I, I the longer I sit and think about it, the more I'm like, oh yeah, I kinda you might be up to that. I, I if he's up to that, I can be I, I'm down with it. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. No. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean it, it it's one of those movies where I remember seeing it in theaters when it came out and I was kinda like, All right, that was the, you yeah. know, that if he had to retire, that's not like a horrible way to go up. It's not you know, I would have maybe done it a couple movies back or you know it, it was it's, <laughs> Like be it's, my last that's, yeah, no, exactly. Like Ben and I talk about this, and it's like it's whenever I see one of his movies, it's it's not like it's probably a a fifty fifty chance I'm gonna like it, you know. But I'm yeah. always going to appreciate it. And like Side Effects was one of those where I'm like, I can appreciate that. I'm, I don't love it. It's kind of like no. you know the Good German where it feels more like an exercise to me that you were trying right. to get something out of your system than something I, I actively like. But, you know, I can I can always appreciate it for what you're trying to do because, as you said earlier, it's like this kind of journeyman who's willing to take risks and, you know, kind of explore the space of what films can do. He's one of the few who kind of will, will do something screwy like remake Solaris or something along those lines. Let me ask you a question. Do you think, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, do you think he could ever be, like, the studio guy? Like, do you think he could ever, like 
run a studio and do the thing that he's talked about doing, which is bringing in talent and farming, like giving them a certain budget, go make this thing. Do you think he would actually be good at it? Do you think it would fail upon? <laughs> I mean, I, it, it's hard. Like when I read his ideas, I'm always like, yeah, I agree with you. But he always seems like he's slightly out of sync with where the industry is. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's either five years ahead or just like mm-hmm. just slightly off the curve. Um, so part of me would say philosophically, yes, he could. But then you look at things like he's produced and it's like you've, you've produced some weird shit, man. And, yeah. you know, I don't know who the audience <laughs> is for this. At the same time, you know, he finds something in the Russo brothers and the Russo brothers have clearly spoken about how much Steven Soderbergh meant to their career. Uh, he mm. produced Welcome to Collingwood, and it's got Sam Rockwell and all these, like, you know, it's Clooney, and I'm trying to remember who else is in there. But it's like he clearly saw something in these guys, like, 15 to 20 years before the bulk of the industry right. did. And right. Chris Nolan says very much the same things, where, you know, he was approached by Warner Brothers to do Insomnia based on Soderbergh seeing um, Memento or following and just said, you know, I think you should give this guy a chance. So I think he, he has an eye for talent. I think he um has the ideas but yeah again I, I i don't know like i'm kind of like part of me always wants to ask like nicole about her work and be like why don't you guys just give like soderbergh like a production contract and he'll like right. find your your people for you it's i i think the same like i think he the five year ahead thing is typically very true like he always like the window like slashing windows mm-hmm. with bubble like that was so far ahead like no one could imagine that that was a thing he's very very good at being very like a fortune teller in a way, but I, and he is also very good at corralling talent when he talked, you know, Shane Carruth and Barry Jenkins and, you know, like all those folks, like, I think he's good at it, but I don't know if, I think the thing we were talking about with the money, the money ball thing will always be like his Achilles heel. He is too inside baseball sometimes to be, able to do this yeah like he so, cannot explain it all his interests are so kind of idiosyncratic yeah like I, I remember reading i think it was an interview he did with ann thompson and around the time of traffic where he's like i want to be the filmmaker of the 70s and i was like yeah audiences don't want the filmmaker of the 70s much anymore they might right. want it if netflix you know if he's going to be five million dollars and they can throw it on netflix you know but he's essentially back doing sex lies and videotape he's making direct-to-video movies for a very low budget that are really well done and uh yeah no it's but yeah i mean again he's he's, it's this weird kind of it's 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 this weird momentum because again like yesterday he tweeted i don't know if you saw this he's working on a new movie and he was essentially like proud of the fact that they had a new red camera. And he was like, I, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm using this new red camera. And I remember the first one I used like 15 years ago. And it was like, yeah, like he and Michael Mann were like the first people shooting digitally. And everyone thought it was, you know, fucking weird and looked horrible. And yeah, like full frontal looks like trash. But, you know, like you, you found you found a kind of even cue with this stuff. He's he is it what makes me sad is that I think there's probably like 10 percent of the population of film people including our students who actually know who steven soderbergh mm-hmm. is and that actually really puzzles me like they can kubrick they know tarantino of course they know nolan they know but they don't know soderbergh and i am always sort of lost at why that is but i think it's because he just he's never been he because he is so idiosyncratic he does not know how to do studio pictures all like all that well i mean the oceans franchise being what it is you know but it just he doesn't know how to do it all that well so i don't think he know and i don't think he is 
he I don't think he carries himself the way that those other dudes do. So I well, think it's an unfortunate thing that no one knows who he is, really. And I think that's part of it. But I also think it's his joy and pride in taking on like, I'm going to do a different genre. I'm going to do, yeah. you know, a biopic that's all in Spanish. That isn't really about Che Guevara directly at all, and it's more about like how he planned battles, right? So it, he almost reminds me of like like a John Huston, where it's just he's like, yeah, like I'm not like a work for hire, but when I take something, it's you know for a totally different reason than like an auteur would. There's he doesn't have those traditional auteur marks where he's always. Yeah. I mean, he yes, he does deal with capital and he does deal with power, but that's that's a very broad concept, yeah, right? And the way in which he does deal with those things is so incredibly varied across the work he's done. So for me, it's always been like his defining characteristic is that he doesn't have a defining characteristic. He is this kind That's of chameleon. Fair. And so That's I don't fair. I don't think most people know they're watching a Soderbergh movie when they're watching one. That's true. I mean, that's fair. That is absolutely fair. I think, I mean, it's just part of it is he has like the skill set, like the, 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 the work ethic of, like of, of Houston, like you were saying, but he also has the literacy of... Um, or Scorsese, like he has a very vast film knowledge of film history and, and films of not just starting in the 1980s, which I think is a difference from a lot of filmmakers, uh, his contemporaries and the new kids coming up. I, and I, and so the fact that he has all this like institutional knowledge about what kinds of films were made by what studios and libraries and those things, the fact that it is appreciated in a body like Scorsese and it is undervalued in a body like Soderbergh is just kind of fascinating to me. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's kind of interesting. Cause I, I I don't know. I feel like I'm gonna talk shit on him for a second, which Most is like no, 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 because like I, I, so like okay, I, need to be off again, I, love yeah, no, because like I mean, I get his 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 profound love of film history, and get don't get me wrong. Whenever he comes out with his yearly list of everything I've watched, you know, I go track down those things. When he mentioned, I remembered being in high school and reading these books of interviews with him. I'd go try to track down like Petulia because he's talking about how great Richard Lester is. He he, his knowledge is profound and vast but i also like can't think of can't help but think of something like the good german and i don't know if you ever read did you ever read the david boardwell blog about the good german it's been a really long time it's fascinating because he essentially looks at the good german he's like okay soderbergh's trying to do a classic hollywood movie with these lenses with these cameras and all he's changing is the content the form is just going to be classic hollywood in terms Mm. of the staging in terms of the shot length and essentially, Boardwell is like, no, he failed. He failed miserably. Like, the shot lengths are much shorter than they should be. The focal lengths of the lenses have nothing in common with what they were doing. So it, 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 it was very strange to me because Soderbergh did in the bulk of his interviews and the bulk of the way he talked about that movie. He was like, I'm trying to recreate, you know, a 40s, you know, I'm trying to do the third man with swearing and nudity, essentially, was what he was saying. And, you know, when you actually yeah. try to quantify it or distill it and... Maybe part of that's could be Warner Brothers recutting it. I, I doubt it on a movie like that. But you know, like it, it's here's a guy who could be really thoughtful about it. But yeah, I was kind of shocked when I actually read that and you know they got into the the dirt on it. Yeah, it was fascinating. Interesting, interesting. I mean, no, no, that make. I mean, I could buy that. I could buy that his attempt to want to do it and his sort of inability to sort of let himself fully do it. I can see how that could be that could create the gulf of difference that is what he what he was meaning to do and what he actually did no that's fair yeah it, i mean i like him a lot but i can and i i like and i i dislike that he's so undervalued but 
some of it might be some of it not might some of it is very much his own sort of unforced errors and so you know like you gotta you know the good with the bad man <laughs> did, you, did you read that interview he gave about his oscar speech did you hear this Oh no, I did not. Okay, so so he found out this past year at the at the academy in order to to kind of brief everyone on what the ideal Oscar speech was. They showed his speech from when he won best director for Traffic and he was like appalled cuz he came out and was like I didn't think it. he gave the context for it and like 16-year-old me or whenever however old I was when that speech went on, I I didn't understand what was going on. He was trashed. Like, I mean, he's he's slurring a little bit, but he thought he was going to lose, so he didn't think he had to go up there and say anything. So he kept drinking all day, and, you know, he gets up there, and he's just kind of like, this one's for the artists, and he, you know, raises it up, and he leaves, and he's like, and he's like, you have no idea how much shit I got for that, not only because I was, like, half in the bag, but because I didn't thank anyone at all who I was supposed to thank. And so I, I think he was like, Casey Sober at Universal still hasn't forgiven me for not saying his name. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, that kind of is your MO where it's like, I'm just going to do it on my terms and, you know, it'll Always. come out the way it, it, it'll come out the way it does. I just, people will just find it how they find it. I'm always surprised that people find it. Like he, I mean, a lot is just, oh, so much of it, so much of it. I mean, one day we will go through the money ball thing because I'm just so curious as to what the hell went wrong with that. But yeah. Yeah. Unforced well, errors. He does those a lot. <laughs> Well, and, and yeah, like, did, yeah, <laughs> we could, we could keep, we could so keep accounting. Many. I mean, it's just yeah. so many, so many things. I'm just like, oh, Stephen, don't do it. Don't say, oh, you said it. Like, and sometimes you're just like, oh, damn. Well, I guess you got nothing to lose. You keep telling us you got nothing to lose. <laughs> so just keep doing it then, I guess. Keep doing it. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate your time today. It was great to talk to you about this. It's, it's nice to kind of geek out over Soderbergh. I haven't. Yeah. I never get to. My students have no idea who the man is. And I'm like, we're going to watch this state of cinema speech, damn it. And you're going to appreciate <laughs> They don't really. But ever, over time, they will learn to. So, yeah, I, I I love. Thank you for inviting me. This has been fun. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. I, I spent so much of, like, my undergrad working on his movies. My undergrad thesis was on him. And, you know, I've always kind of followed him since. But, yeah, it was after, I think my first articles on him and or first two were on Soderbergh. And then just, like, I was kind of like, okay. This well's kind of no. dry on like the indie wood idea. Like I don't know what else to say about this guy, so yeah, I kind of moved on, and so it's it's kind of nice to return to it. I should I should have Colin on one of these days, and we'll talk about oh, his version. Oh, he y'all will be at this for three or four hours. Like <laughs> I cannot even like he has so many more feelings than I do. I just I'm like I appreciate and love him a little bit, but Colin is like worships, <laughs> worships. So I enjoy that day <laughs> well if you can think of anything else you you want to try to watch or catch up on let me know and we'll we'll have you on again will do this was good times i appreciate it yeah take care okay you too well i hope you enjoyed my episode with chris and warner we've been wanting to discuss Soderbergh for quite a while i'm not quite sure when i'll be back the school year starts in two weeks or so um so feel free to catch up on old episodes in the meantime while i nail down a next guest or a next topic you can find me on Twitter at The Cinema Doctor, and you can subscribe via iTunes and Spotify. In the meantime, we'll see you at the movies.